0: At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum, restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. You can save an extra $10 when you spend 40 or more on a great selection of participating items. Just look for the signs and save at Baker's.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 138
0: of... Hey, bad man!
1: (laughs) On this episode, unbelievably, I am talking to Susie Quattro. I say unbelievably because Susie Quattro was like a total massive hero of mine when I was a kid. Like just, uh, she had a couple of massive hits, Can the Can and Devil Gate Drive. And when I was listening to songs like that, they even kind of slightly scared me. Devil Gate Drive, like what the hell's going on there? But just amazing rocker. But she's an inspiration to so many people because back then there was no female act who was like a plain, she played bass. And sang, and she looked amazing in a one piece leather jumpsuit. I just looked amazing and she still looks amazing and uh, there's a documentary called Susie q and which um lots of uh all the female musicians just uh count her as a big inspiration. people like Tina Weymouth. Bass player with the talking heads and uh, Debbie Harry, of course, and lots more, lots that came out in the eighties, more like punk generation, uh, site Susie Quattro as a huge inspiration because she was the only one you would see out there. Like there was like Janice Joplin, but she was dead. And, uh, there was Joni Mitchell, of course, brilliant singer songwriter, but not like a rocker, you know, uh, Susie was a rocker and is still a rocker. And she has an album. Coming out now called The Devil in Me and it's out. It's out. The Devil in Me and some amazing songs that aren't just kind of heavy rock songs. Actually, there's, there are some of those as well, but, uh, there's a couple of beautiful soulful songs. Um, what's the one? In the dark, uh, My heart and soul. They're beautiful. So she's an amazing voice as well, but I, so talking to her was just pretty kind of surreal. Yeah. You know. Jesus, like, someone that you... I didn't... I would say I didn't see her on TV because I would have just heard her on the radio and then um, I would have seen, obviously, photos of her in, like, pop magazines and stuff. Um, so, like, just a star, you know? Like, it's just incredible. Anyway, look, in the meantime, I, as you may know, I do... I've been doing a bit of running and uh, I started doing barefoot running on the beach. Uh, a few months ago, to cure my plantar fasciitis, right? So I just decided to walk on the beach, and then I said, "Oh, I'll have a run," so I'm running, and then I got injured again. So my Achilles was injured because I started running with runners again. So I'm back again. I'm at race ambassador for the at 10K, which is happening on the May Bank Holiday weekend, and I have just started back running. I've done about four runs. I've done my first total 5K barefoot on the beach. It's amazing. A lot of people think, oh, could you not put your foot on the shelves? No, 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 it's fine. But I put up a little photo on Instagram yesterday of my feet in the sand. And I was like, good day to feel the earth beneath your feet. And I hashtagged barefoot running or barefoot runner. And a guy called Barefoot Ted commented on my photograph. Now Barefoot Ted is a guy, if there's a, there's a book called Born to Run, which anybody who does, is really into running probably has read. And it's about marathon runners and ultra marathons and stuff. And particularly it's about a race that happens in Mexico with this uh, Mexican Indian tribe who all just are amazing runners and they run almost barefoot. Most of the time they run barefoot. And there's a whole thing about running barefoot and how the advent of running shoes cause a lot of injuries because you're not feeling the actual ground with your feet properly. So your knee, your knee or whatever, it isn't, it isn't like taking the impact correctly. So, Barefoot Ted was this character in the book who is this like guy who's just totally into barefoot running and uh he, he's like, uh, you just read about him in the book and it's amazing. But for him to have commented on my photograph on Instagram just blew my mind. So there you go. Barefoot Ted. I'm going to try and get him on the podcast. Um, he seems like a crazy wild guy. Yeah. Lives in California. I looked at some of his posts and he... He, he's funny. (laughs) I mean, he's just like, he's eating a taco and he's just gone crazy about this taco. Um, stuff like that. And he makes these, uh, shoes that he sells online as well. So anyway, I'm going to be running on that race, the 10k, uh, draw that. So I'll have to, um, run with runners for that. So I'm going to have to try and find myself a pair of those kind of runners that don't have massive soles so I don't get injured again. Um, it's just been horrible the last few years just been injured all the time it's been like, My like plantar fasciitis right on the sole of your foot And the Achilles at the ankle Well let's not go on about it But yeah So also what I've been doing recently is um, Writing, recording and editing a sketch comedy podcast Called DICTV Radio And it's on Spotify You can get it or anywhere you listen to podcasts So here's a little clip of one sketch that's on it. And now, a dramatization of a true story that really did occur. Some of the names have been changed to preserve the anonymity of the real people to whom this really did happen. But some of the facts are true. This is the story about a beautician that goes ugly.
2: Betty, sit down. Are you wondering why I brought you into the office? Well, yes, I am, actually. Well, Betty, it's because you look dirty. You look dirty and mad. This is a beauty salon. You're a beautician. The clue's in the name. We're all about beauty, not mad, dirty people. I found that quite insulting. How am I dirty? You're covered in marks. They're all over your body. You mean my tattoos? And frankly, you smell like rotten vegetables. Oh, I get it. Is this because I'm vegan? No, not at all. Look, Betty, you're clearly not well. Only yesterday you got sick on Mrs. Jaborsky's foot. Oh, my God. Have you seen her bunions? They're disgusting. Nobody else would touch your feet. Why are you picking on me? You can't fire me because of how I look. OK, Betty, I'd hoped you'd have a better attitude. So let me tell you, I can fire you whenever I want. But count yourself lucky. I won't fire you because I want to help you. I have some friends from the church waiting outside the door and they're willing to help you. Father Michael, Haley, you can come in now.
1: Quick, tie her to the chair, Haley.
2: OK, Father. What are you doing? Leave me alone. That must be the devil talking, Father.
1: Yes, indeed, Hayley. Don't worry, Betty. We we know you're in there somewhere.
2: Oh, my God, you people are insane. He's using the Lord's name in vain, Father. Out, oh, demon! Out! Out! Leave her alone! I'm reporting this to the Employment Rights Bureau. This is outrageous. I'll see you in court.
0: Can the devil do that? Bring us the court?
1: Oh no, he's up to his old tricks again. Shut up, demon. You haven't a leg to stand on. You were never employed at this beautician's. Ergo, you have no rights. It's Betty we want to speak to. Not you, Satan.
2: I am Betty, you moron. Oh,
1: he's gone. We've cast him out.
2: That was quick.
1: We must be getting better at this, Father. Welcome back, Betty. Welcome back to the Lord.
2: I will never come.
1: You've been through a lot.
2: I haven't been through anything.
1: Oh, my child, you're still in shock.
2: I'm not in shock. No need to thank me, Betty. It's not the first employee we've had to perform exorcism on. That right, Ailey.
0: And it won't be the last?
2: Now, just get back to work. That's thanks enough for me. Right, OK, look, can I just leave now, OK?
1: Go in peace.
2: Oh, fuck off. Uh, Father Michael? Yes, I know you just cast the demon out there, but she still smelled like rotting vegetables. That
1: would be because she's a vegan. The most vile sinners on God's earth.
2: Right.
1: And also, as you know, or you may not know, Potteruni is on the Headstuff podcast network. And there's lots of amazing podcasts on that network. And here's one of them.
0: Hello, I'm Emma-Jane from Fail Harder, the podcast that chats to people at the top of their game about failure, from their first memory of failure to how they cope with it now. I have some unbelievable guests on the show, like Paul Meskel, James Cavanagh, Georgina Campbell. The list just goes on. And of course, we'd be mad to take failure too seriously. So every week, I have 20 questions in front of me, numbered at random. Most are straightforward. However, some are a little more unconventional. And in the spirit of failure, my guest can pick the number. They might not like the results, but life's not fair and neither is my podcast.
1: So there you go. So without further ado, here is, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Susie Quattro. Right, yeah, listen, uh, thanks very much, Susie, for joining me here. Um, yeah, but listening to the new album, it's amazing. Um, so, the Devil and Me is there references to uh, your mother? There are she would
3: Can you see it? <laughs> she she was the one. She she had five kids. She often said to me that I was the sweetest and the shyest child, but the one with the mischief in my eyes. Right. And it was her that said you were an angel until your halo slipped and it became a noose. And that always that always stuck in my head. So yeah, the whole song was kind of really about her attitude to me. And she was a real strict Catholic lady and you have the devils and angels in you from the time you're born, you know? And you and you and you, you major in guilt, you know, so that's that's me. That's what that song's all about.
1: Original sin and all that kind of thing. Oh yeah.
3: Oh yeah. <laughs> you never if you're if you're raised as a Catholic, it stays with you your whole life. It's a very strong religion, you know? Yeah, I know. I'm one.
1: <laughs> so uh but when was the first time you uh, thought you said, "This is what I want to do. I want to be a rock and roll
3: star"? Well, that that isn't how it happened. I um I got bitten by the entertainment bug right. when I saw Elvis Presley at five and a half years old on TV, and um, I had a little light bulb moment at that young age that I was going to do what he did, and I I never forgot it. I went, "Oh, I'm going to do that." Then I took up bongo drums at seven. And my dad used to let me play in front of his trio. He took me there on a Sunday instead of dropping me off at church. Oh, if my mother knew, oh, she would have killed him. Um, then I took classical piano. Then I took percussion and played in the school orchestra. And then at 14, we saw the Beatles on television, and the decision was taken to start an all-girl band. Uh, everybody picked an instrument. Nobody chose the bass It was given to me. Fine. And I remember standing on stage at the age of 14 with my 1957 Fender Precision. <laughs> and uh, we knew three songs. And I remember looking down at the audience and I said to myself, I'm home. Mm. So that's the answer to your question. I'm home. Right. That's amazing. And
1: I see on the first album you you covered, All Shook Up. Um Did you ever hear if
3: Elvis heard that or... Yeah, that's a famous story. Uh, it was 1974. I was doing my first tour back in my home country with my English band. I'd had hits, you know, so I was coming back successful. And um, All Shook Up was in the lower end of the charts, my version. Mm-hmm. And I was in uh, Memphis, and the phone rang, and it was, first of all, Elvis's people. And then Elvis got on, and I nearly, nearly went through the floor. And he said... I've heard your version of All Shook Up and I think, I love this. I think it's the best since my own. And, uh, would you, would you like to come to Graceland? And I said no. I said I was really, really, really busy. And it wasn't because I was frightened to meet him. I just wasn't quite ready to meet him. And I wasn't supposed to meet him because he sat as a spiritual advisor on my shoulder my whole life. I even wrote Singing with Angels about him. You know, you have to Google it if you don't know it. Very important song. Um, I wrote in tribute and recorded it with James Burton and the Jordanaires. And I wouldn't have written that song had I met him. He was supposed to be this spiritual guide to me my whole life. And he has been. Wow. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. You have to Google the song. It it was like, you know, to, to record that song about Elvis... With James Burton and the Jordanaires in Nashville. Give me a break. So that's exactly what was supposed to happen.
1: Wow, that's incredible. Wow.
3: Yeah. Um, so uh,
1: you know you were with the band with the girls, and then and then uh, Mickey Most came and saw you, and he wanted just you. So you left and went to England on your own, and I know that that caused that caused a huge kind of emotional wrench in your family. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it wasn't easy, uh, but saying that, the, the second wave of the all-girl band called Cradle, uh, I went from being the complete front person, bass playing front person, I was the show, Mm -hmm. to put a back, in the back seat just playing bass because my little sister came in Mm -hmm. and we were going to train her up because she was more the next generation and, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, I was seen twice. I I wasn't happy in that band at all. And they know this. I told them this many times. It wasn't wasn't my kind of act, you know. I like being up front and putting on a show. That's who I am. But I did get very good on my bass guitar in that 18 months. Because that's mainly what I was doing. I only did two or three songs a night. Lead. And uh, Electra Records saw the band. Me at the back. They offered me a solo contract. Mickey Most in the same week saw the band. I was at the back. Offered me a solo contract, so any idiot could see it was my turn to move on. You know, mm-hmm. even at the back, they, they they saw me shining out. So, you know, it's called that X factor thing, and it's it's not even being big headed. It's just saying that anybody that does make it that way, they kind of know they have that way down deep inside. That's what gives you your your push, you know. Uh, so I knew that I had that extra little bit to go that far. And then the offers came and. The, uh, Electra wanted to make me into the next Janice Joplin, and Mickey wanted to make me into the first Susie Quattro. <laughs> so I went with Mickey. So business-wise, no-brainer. But emotionally, it was very hard on me. Mm. I felt bad, naturally leaving the family, and I knew I was gonna miss them terrible, cause we are a close family. And it just, it caused resentment, of course. Mainly with the sister next to me. Not the, 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 the little one, She wasn't crazy about the business anyway. She got in the band for fun. The one next to me whose idea it was to start the first band, she will always have a bit of resentment because her dreams didn't come true. I didn't stop them coming true. I was just following my road, you know. Um, But uh, she will always carry that with her, and it's a shame. But, yeah, we I mean, my little sister and I talk all the time. My other one, we have opened up the lines of communication, my brother, I have no problem with, and my other sister, who used to be in the band, I guess she's my biggest fan. But we are, we we do love each other. But when somebody gets plucked out like that and makes it, there's no family in the world that is not going to have a little bit of problems with that. Hmm. There's just not.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And did, did she go on to join the band Fanny?
3: Yes, she did. She was in that band for about two years, so she had her little shot. You know, I mean, she, that, that could have been her place in the world that she was in that band. And she was. And then the band broke up, and then she didn't really do anything after that. But but she had her shot. She had her chances, you know.
1: Fanny were good, actually. I didn't even know. I was aware of the band, Fanny, and
3: then I good found out. It- Very good band. I was a big fan of the original band. Boy, okay. way, way, way back when we were first starting out, I thought they were really, really good. And I'm quite good friends with the original guitar player. She's excellent. Real good. Real good player.
1: Right, cool. So it uh, must have been a lonely time then. You were, you were in London. I believe you were in a tiny little room just for about a year before anything happened. Or, or anything
3: like? 18 months. Between the time I got there and the time I had my first, it was 18 months. And it felt like 300 years. Um, yes, it was, it was very difficult. Um, I lived in a tiny room with a bathroom down the hall. And I love it because I actually had just a sink and a cracked mirror, which <laughs> you can't write that kind of stuff, you know, Oh, <laughs> with the violence. Um, yeah. But it was uh, just how it worked. We were in the studio trying to make it work and um, Mickey didn't know how to record me. He's the first he would have been the first to say that. And then I finally said, "I gotta, I gotta get a band, gotta get my band together." And I did. And then we went on the road, and the band came together doing all original stuff. And then just everything made sense. Then, then I was Susie Quattro.
1: Right. Yeah. Actually, we really, I love that song "Rolling Stone." That was, uh, I believe, a hit in Portugal first. Was
3: it? Number one in Portugal. Yeah, it was a good song. I wrote the lyrics with Errol Brown for that one. Um, Errol well, Brown from Hot Chocolate. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Good friend of mine. Yeah. He loaned me five pounds. I went to his apartment and we wrote the lyrics on the piano and I didn't have any money and he knew it. He said, are you okay? And I said, well, and he said, you need money, don't you? I said, yeah. And he gave me five pounds. And every time I saw him, he said, don't ever give me that five pounds back. It's been lucky for you. <laughs> so I didn't. <laughs>
1: wow. wow. I love Brown. wow. Brown. Um, so uh were you ever under any pressure that to, just be the singer, because that was the amazing thing about you and always has me That you, well, before any girl was, you know, like a guitarist or a bass player, you just didn't see that when you came along.
3: It was I, I didn't say, I didn't have anybody I could look up to, but but yeah. what, what I was always aware of, even from a small child, is that I was a square peg in a round hole, and I couldn't have articulated it to you. I just knew. There wasn't any particular place that I fit in. Just I could not find my spot. I was unique as a one off. So when I started to play and I thought I'm home, I'm home. Um, That was my niche. And I didn't change it for anybody. I I loved playing the bass. I loved being up front. Done. Done. This is who I am.
1: Yeah.
3: I was uncompromising about it my whole life. And I didn't, I don't actually do gender. I didn't. I didn't care if it was an all-girl band. I just wanted to play, um, and I don't do gender now. I don't call myself a female musician; call myself a musician. But a lot of times, for the sake of the interview, you have to go to that route. But really, I am androgynous in a way. I'm just—I'm just who I am.
1: Yeah, I—I I, I like that. You cover the Beatles song as well. I want to be your man on that album. And isn't that very odd that you didn't change, you know, you, you saying, I
3: want to be your man. And you're a woman. Yeah, I purposely did that. Right. I purposely did it. I said, why should I change it? Um, if we're looking at the world as the world does things, being the man means to be strong. So I want to be your strength. That's how I write it in my head. I want to be your man. (laughs) Uh, That's just me and my lateral thinking.
1: (laughs) Right, right. I just wanted to cover that first album because this new album is kind of like a, a return to
3: that. Yeah, this is what we wanted to do. My son said, because we had no control, which everybody loved. First time we worked together. So it was anything goes. We had no blueprint first time together, you know. Right. So and it sounded like that. It was fun. All different kinds of things, you know, just it went from A to Z. So this one, we we knew what we wanted to do. He got his confidence level up here, which is great. Mm -hmm. and he said, right at the beginning when we started to write this album, he said, I want this to be as important and as groundbreaking as your first album. This is the benchmark he set, and it has to be no control. So I said, that works for me. And we started to write, and he really dug his heels in, I have to say. He was really quite obstinate sometimes, you know, which is good. That means... To me, that means he had a strong vision, you know. And we would be right, he'd say, no, that doesn't fit, or no, 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 and this and that. I'd be thinking, you know, you're like five seconds in the business, you know. But, I mean, he's been in band since 14, but I do trust him. I do trust him. What I realized as we were working together, what made it all make sense, is that he was bringing the gift of his 36-years-old generation of music to the table, and the, the slightly different way people write of that generation now, maybe different licks and the, you know, whatever that entails. And he was bringing in his DNA his vision of watching me on stage since he can remember. And that's who he sees is Susie Quattro. And it won't, he won't change it up. This is how he sees me. I brought to the table my 57 years in the business, my 70 years of age and my life experience and it's strange to say, but I gave birth to him and he gave rebirth to me. I'm seeing myself through his eyes. And it's like, it's like being reborn. I'm going, wow, you know, wow, it's, it's great. And he has put his foot down quite a few times. You know, you're not going to make an album without having a few artistic back and forths, of course, yeah. you know, yeah. but, um, I do trust him. Cause he keeps, he he kept saying right from the start, even from no control, I care about your music. I care about you. I know what you should be doing. Who's cared about this for the past 20 years? Who's cared about you so much? You gotta trust that, don't you? You really do have to trust that, you know?
1: Yeah, is, is he involved in the writing as well with
3: you? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've written the whole album together. And and I am very much a lyricist. I always have been. But, um, yeah. I, of course, I do music too. I write on the piano a lot or on the bass. Yeah. But um, he does a lot of licks. He does a lot of riffs. He's a riff guy. Yeah. And he'll show it to me and I'll put it on the computer here and I'll play with it and find out where I think it should go. We go back and forth musically. He doesn't have a lot to do with the lyric, but sometimes... We're credited as both, because a lot of times he'll say a line that will go in, and that means you had something to do with it, or he'll give me a title and an idea for a song. So we we do share everything, unless I've actually done the whole thing myself. And if I have, like I know control, I think there's three or four songs that he had nothing to do with, and his name didn't go on. But this one, we did everything together.
1: Yeah, and uh, I read that you... Need a title before you write the lyric? Do you need a title for the?
3: Sometimes, sometimes I often, I don't know why, just me. I will often work on a title. Something hits me. Oh oh yeah, good title. But I also have a book of one-liners or ideas. So I have a song book. Um, I have a book of poetry that came out a few years ago. Now through my eyes, and there are poems in there that I changed also to songs. Sometimes I'm looking for inspiration, and I go through my poetry, and I go, "Oh yeah," and then it changes, it changes shape when it goes to a song. And sometimes I've written lyrics for a song that just don't fit on a song, and they've just become a poem. But I'm very lyric-minded. I'm a typical Gemini. You know, words are words are everything to us. And will you write on the bass? You write. You write. You start. I sometimes, or? sure. I do sometimes I'll I might find a riff on the bass a sequence on the bass and then I'll get that and and then I'll go to piano because piano's my instrument I'm a trained classical pianist then I'll go there or to guitar uh I often write on piano and if I want to write something very simple I write it on guitar because I'm not a great guitar player I know enough to write but I never went from guitar to bass like a lot of people do. Oh, they failed on guitar. I'm not a failed guitar player. I'm a bass player. Uh, so, so the guitar is. I'm not a great guitar player. I'm good enough to write with it. I know. I know what I try to do. You know.
1: So on these last two albums, working with with your son, will, would he arrange? If you if you've got a song, would he change the arrangement, or would that would that happen?
3: It just evolves. Yeah. It evolves. You go in and you start the demo. You know. And you put it down, and you're listening away and uh, adding a, you know, it's just usually him and me and, and the engineer, and he'll add a basic drum track to it. I'll maybe add some piano, Richard will add this and that. And it keeps evolving, and as you're listening and you're writing it, you'll go, wait a minute, that chorus should go there, and then there should be a space here, and there, and it evolves. It's always a work in progress. The basic song is there, and then you start to put it down and see what is needed and where it's needed. And then by the time... You've got a very good demo you then send it to the musicians so they can learn it and then they come down and play their own bit on top of the demo until everything is replaced right. this is how you do it
1: okay um the song i sold my soul today
3: what's what's that about <laughs> everybody keeps asking me about that normally i would not tell anybody what my songs are about because it's the beauty is in the eye of the listener to tell you the truth um did I just say that? Yes, that's quite good. I like that. I gotta remember that that's a good line. The beauty is in the eye of the listener. Yes, that's good. Yeah. Hang on, the I gotta write that down. Is in the that'll be a line in the song. The eye of the listener. Ooh or the eyes. Listener. Okay. Um had the riff and my son said and it was a dark it's kind of a dark riff, and he said, Um, I don't want to tell you about, you know, what lyrics to write or anything, but I I keep thinking about how somebody sells their soul. And that resonated with me, right? I went, okay. I went away with that idea and put it through my system. And then I came up with a woman who has a very strict moral code, nearly square. Good girl, good woman, but strict moral code. She gets involved with a man who does not respect her moral code she loves him even trying to introduce a third person to the relationship and she doesn't change her moral code but she sells her soul because she stays for him and that made sense to me and when i explained it to richie went boy you went deep i said yeah but that's how i can understand it so you know you you shouldn't stay she should have walked out the door it would have get everything in here. And she kept to herself but she stayed. So she did sell herself. I just hope she got a good price for it. That's all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so when you when you go back out uh touring will will you play how
3: much of the set will be the last two albums? Now that's always difficult. I do a two hour show now with a fifteen minute interval. Yeah. And always play all the hits and always play, you know, one or two from fav- one or two favorite tracks from all the albums. And then like the last album, No Control, there's four songs in the set of that. And, you know, you try different things out. There were two or three that I tried out live and they, they didn't slot in easily. So now this one, I will add probably three or four. I mean, there's some obvious ones to go in, you know, The Devil and Me will go in, but I, I'm not sure because they're all so good. It's such, such a good album. It's amazing. And I, I have to do so. Oh, it's, it's, it's really good. And i they, go they ahead. Seem like yeah, songs that would really work live. I mean, they really rock, you know? Yeah, like the devil in me. Yeah. Hey, Queenie, God forbid if that goes in this set. What a bass line I gave myself. Jesus Christ almighty.
1: Oh, that's, uh, one that, uh, well, you might find difficult to play. Is that the one that you said, um, you, when you were writing it, you weren't, you
3: had the vocal down. So then you, no, this was, um, no soul, no control on the last album. Yeah. And I had, I had run in, I had finished lyrics and I ran in. We were only doing a demo and I said, let I got to sing this. Let me sing it. And I sang what turned out to be the lead vocal. So all the things were put on to the lead vocal. And once the drums were on, I had to redo the bass because the bass player has to play with the drummer, not the other way around. So I redid the bass. And because I was playing my bass part to my real lead vocal, I went nutty on it. I played much, much more than I normally would have done. And then I had to learn it for stage. And I went, oh, no, what have I done? So I had to relearn it. Um, But it was okay. I got it now. I just had to have the engineer send me that track, but with the bass up quite loud so I could hear what I did. Because usually, even if it's not the real vocal, to keep all the band together, I'll have a scratch mic up here, and I'll play, and I'll just sing. I don't you know, not singing properly, but so they know where you are. And without knowing it, your vocal is going along. You're doing both together. Mm-hmm. But, hey, Queenie, I did a walking bass part, which is a normal on bass, on a not normal chord sequence. And so everybody everybody was waiting for me to get it worked out. I said, just be patient, everybody. It will be worth it. And now they've all said, that's the best bass line on the album, but also the most difficult. So if I have to play and sing that, you know, and the vocal is completely different. Yeah, Completely. So I will have to, and once you get it, you get it. That's what's funny. I've had like three songs in 57 years that had that difficult difference in the vocal and the bass that I had to play and practice, you know? But then once you get it, it just moves by itself and you don't even think about it. So if I have to do that live, I will have to practice that one. I'm admitting it now.
1: <laughs> so what, what, what do you do? Is you, you just play the bass line over and over and over again?
3: No, well, no. You keep playing it and singing it. Keep playing it and singing it. Concentrating mainly on the bass and letting your voice come in. Letting your voice come in. Then when you think you've really got it, then you sing it out loud with the bass. But you have to, you have to keep doing the words, play along with it usually on the CD. Knowing you're gonna get the bass first, and there's, you know, don't think about the bass as you're singing, and then you find, your brain finds a way to connect the vocal to this. It connects. Boom, sing, going, and you find your little spaces. She's in Love with You was the first one I ever had to practice and play. Oh, really? Because it's, um a machine. It doesn't move. And it's like a machine that doesn't stop, and the vocal, it goes, but if you see, you're all on one night, walk up to... Completely behind it. So this has to be steady with no movement, and the vocal has to drag behind, and that was hard. But now I don't think about it. I just do it, but it, but I did have to practice that. It's the phrasing. You know, you're doing a machine phrasing on the bass, non-moving, as if it is a machine, and your vocal is sitting behind it. So that did take some work, but now I I, I don't think about it. Yeah, when I do my master bass classes... I will use that to illustrate. And people always go, Jesus Christ, how do you do that? It's it's thinking with different parts of your brain. But saying that, I really except for those few songs that I've just mentioned, I've never really even thought about it. Maybe because I started playing bass and singing at the same time. Mm. I didn't I didn't learn bass and then start to sing. I actually did the two. That's actually the key to it. I never realized till this very second. I learned them, I, I started to do them both simultaneously. I was bass player, lead singer, so whatever I did, it just came together.
1: Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's not necessarily how difficult the bass line is, it's just the difference between the bass line and the
3: vocal. And the vocal. Because yeah. vocal is phrasing and it sometimes, sits back here and shouts here, but and you just have to learn this so you don't think about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I just watched the uh Q documentary, and uh, how do you feel about all those women who just look up to you and, uh, like, you know, Debbie Harry and um, uh,
3: Tina Weymouth and all those uh, women who? Well, people have asked me this so many times, and I, 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 I'm, I'm a real, I'm an old bullshit girl. Um, I honestly did not know what I was doing when I was doing it. It wasn't my agenda.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I was just really just being who I was. I don't really do gender, never have. Mm. Um, I never called myself or thought of myself as a female musician. I don't think I ever used that term. I just said, I'm a musician. Mm. And after I made the documentary and I finally went to the premiere in London at the Regent's Theatre, I was uh, due on stage to do the question and answer at the end of it. And I really wanted to see it with an audience on the big screen. So I snuck in, stood on the side. A couple of people saw me and went Shh. So I wanted to feel the, the laughter, the tears, the applause, the surprise. I wanted to feel that, you know, that's how you really see something with an audience. And these women coming up all the way through, I, I was, I was in tears. I was in tears. I was just going, what? What? I did that. And the next day I called my friend, Cherie Curry from the Runaways. Mm. We're good friends. And I said, I have something to tell you. And she said, what? I said, well, I went to the premiere last night, and I saw the film in front with an audience. Okay. I said, and I just realized something. And she said, what? And I said, well, by by me doing what I did, I gave women all over the world permission to be different. And there was this long pause. And she said, and you just got that? (laughs) (laughs) See, I laughed my ass. I said, yes. And isn't that's kind of refreshing, though, isn't it? I mean, I really did not. I didn't think about it. I didn't get it. Now I do. Now I do. And it is very humbling and I will take that to my grave. Thank you very much. Uh, I am proud of that, but I didn't know it. I didn't know I was doing that. I was simply being uncompromisingly who I am. You know? And that broke the door down. And I say it many times. I broke the door down because I didn't see the door. It didn't, yes, it didn't occur to me that I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I'm the same now. You know, sometimes I'm in a six-foot guy-two's face. That pissed me off. doesn't occur to me that I'm five-foot-two. Terrible, really.
1: <laughs> was there really a lot of mis- misogyny in, in the music industry or in the 70s or 80s?
3: I get asked that a lot, too. I was usually the only girl around, but you you get back what you give out. This my experience of life. So mm. I gave off that, I'm a musician, do you have a problem? I gave that off. So I got nothing but respect back. I never had anything different in my whole life. Yeah. But the respect comes from here. You know, I was never apologetic and or oh, girl not in my not in my uh, DNA. At yeah. one time, I remember I came off one time that made you just made me think of it. I I, I bashed a guy because I, I mean he made me so mad i came off the stage and he had got a backstage pass so he was maybe part of another band's friends or something and i i always do a 15 to 20 minute bass and drum solo it's essential in my show just to, and i go through all the different kinds of music it's really entertaining and i came off and he said love the drum solo i went <laughs> not the basic and drums, and drums. <laughs> I said something not very nice to My am I afraid.
1: <laughs> Fair play to you, yeah. And you saw The Devil In Me is coming out, and you, you know the way it is now. Do you feel that, like, there's very little money in the music industry? I mean,
3: you, it- the industry has to address this because... The artist doesn't get paid much for streaming and Spotify and all that, and so people are getting money for free. And the industry has to come to terms with this. There's hardly any record stores left, you know. But uh, it will do, because a lot of artists, this is how they make their living. So it needs to be evened out somehow, and it will, you know. I think you get Sheeran's gone online and saying stuff. Other artists have said it. Um, You certainly don't make money out of your album sales like you used to because it's not as physical anymore it's digital and they will have to come to terms with it because people shouldn't get money for free that is your living mm-hmm. i mean get, get music for free you know you've spent the time you've spent the money making it and then they they pay peanuts for it on the thing and they don't pay you for it that's not right so a lot of these agencies have to be addressed for sure
1: and then maybe the pandemic has brought it to a head because the only way bands were making money was doing live shows and now they can't even do live shows.
3: It's like. Exactly. So I think now is the time where it's going to become a real issue. So hopefully it will be sorted out. Yes. Right. Cool. So you're, uh, going to tour. Uh,
1: when, when do you go back out in the road then? Um, I, I don't know. It's my, my book is- maybe I saw dates and they were from, they were maybe they were from last year or something. Sorry. I thought
3: there was a tour planned. No. Well, all the tour, all the gigs from last year were postponed this year, and I think we have them listed starting in about May, June. But we're going day by day, and every day somebody's postponing again. So nobody has these answers. Um, I know that I'm booked into the Albert Hall, April twentieth, two thousand twenty-two, and that looks like that's going to sell out. And I'm supposed to be going to Australia, and there are a lot of things in the book. We just got to wait. I don't have the answers. We go day by day, you know. You've already you already got the COVID nineteen, did you? I did last November. Been there, done that, got the T shirt, <laughs> <laughs> and got the injection, and I get my next on the end of April. Yeah, it's okay. Um, yeah. I had it for about ten days. It, I traveled to Europe four times, and I got COVID in my own home.
1: Right. <laughs> oh, uh, it's from your gra- uh, granddaughter, was it? hers? I can't remember. Was there your granddaughter brought it?
3: My 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 grandson. Grandfather. Yeah, he brought it in. He had it at school, and uh, he had no symptoms, so nobody knew we had it, you know. And I had the one family dinner here before lockdown started again, mm. as as you were allowed, you know, just six people. Yeah. And um, I gave him a big hug and said, "That's it now." So lockdown's finished. Bang! I had it. My daughter came down with it first. I came down with it next, and then uh, whoever else was here. At one by one, we went down like the dominoes, you know. But, uh, yeah, I'm okay. I'm fine now. I'm over it. Right. Susie, look,
1: you look amazing. I, I was just, and I, you actually look better than some of the people who were, who were, you, you influenced. And, uh, I think rock and roll does take it out of some people, you know. Um, did you feel like over the years that, uh, that you went astray maybe with the drinking or did you just keep it straight and just?
3: I'm in the business because I love the business hmm. and it, it's a legal high for me and I love it. Every time I go out there, you know, it's like the first gig all over again. Every song I write, like, like giving birth to a new baby. Mm. I've never felt the need for excess. Mm. Just not who I am. I have the wild side. It goes on the stage, it comes off and it's normal. Ish, ish. I'm not completely normal, but um no, I'm not a sex, drugs, and rock and roll girl. Mm. I never have been. I don't, I don't believe in it. Why? Why? be in a business, that you have to be high to do it. I'm sorry, you're in the wrong job. Mm. So, so I'm, quite, yeah, I'm, I'm quite sensible that way. I, and right. I, and my, my parents, you know, they were very straight. Um, they didn't drink or smoke. My dad was a musician all his life, never drank or smoked. So I had quite a, a straight upbringing, you know, and that left its mark on me. Gave me, and I'm Catholic girl, gave me the tracks, the tracks that even if you do a little bit here and there, not saying I've been an angel for Christ's sake, you know, mm. I, I grew up in the 60s. Everybody smoked pot, but um, mm. it, it wasn't for me. Not at all. In fact, it made me speed. It made you what? Speedy. Speedy. Oh, really? And you didn't want me around at a party you were smoking pot at, because I was like, they're going, oh, God, get her out of here. Everybody's laid back and stoned, and I'm talking nonstop. So I actually heard somebody say at a party I went to where everybody was smoking, it was the 60s, I heard somebody say to a friend of mine, don't bring her next time.
1: (laughs) It had the opposite effect. It
3: did, it did. So obviously it wasn't my drug, you know. I like my glass of champagne. I like my glass of wine. That's about it. All right, cool. Well, listen, this has been brilliant chatting to you. Thanks for doing okay.
1: it. Um, uh we'll continue working with your. Does your son? Will your son play live
3: as well? Will you? Well, he's got his own band going. Um, he might do some guest spots with me if we get to the stage where we're touring this album only. Then of course he'll play with me, but I want him to make it on his own steam. You know, I don't want him to be up there doing can the can. I, I I want him to be. I don't want him doing anything that we've done together. Absolutely great. But and now he's got his own little band on the run, so it's good.
1: Yeah, um, it's brilliant talking to you. And look, just you've been such an inspiration for for people. And I actually went to Glastonbury with my daughter about two years ago, whenever the last Glastonbury was right. And we only watched female acts, and we didn't do that. Um, on purpose. It was just the acts that we wanted to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is incredible, and I think you are an inspiration to so many people. Just because when you were
3: doing it, uh, starting out, there was only you. Only me. I know. I was like, uh, "Hello." <laughs> anyway, God bless urinals for the men. You know that they they, they had a toilet every time. Anyway, okay. <laughs> I, gotta, I, I gotta do the next one now. I, oh gosh, I'm due. Okay, so thank you very much. Thanks. And, uh, Enjoy. Good talking to you. What, what sign are you? What sign are you before I go? I'm a Libra. Okay. When's your birthday? First of October. What does that mean? <laughs> it means, uh, you can do charm offensive quite easily. You use your facial looks to your best ability. You always have.
1: Oh, I definitely.
3: You know when to be cute. That's a, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a Libra. You will, um, you do like balance. You really do like balance and so much so that you will avoid arguments. And when somebody forces you to actually argue, which you don't like to do, you're not very nice because you don't want to be in that place. You don't want to have to argue. And when they push you, you kind of go, gee, sorry, I even made you go there. And you, you, it's because you're constantly not arguing that when you do argue, it's over the top. It's not even an argument. It's like a cement wall coming down, you know. So did I get you?
1: Yeah, that's pretty uh, good. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you noticed I closed my arms there <laughs> because it was like you were looking into my...
3: I, I study it. I study it. And I read people. And I read people quite well. I just do it. I just do it. I can't help it. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I have that
1: ability. Yeah, I felt a bit vulnerable there when you were saying all that. <laughs> so-
3: well, I, it, it can't put people off because I can, I can tell you about yourself pretty easily and pretty quickly and people go geez how did you know my my husband used to say all the time well he says it all the time we'll meet somebody new start talking and I'll go and my husband always say how do you do that I said because I don't see I don't see facades I see the person that's pretty cool yep I've always been that way anyway I better go do the next one great to talk to you let's talk to you Susie. bye 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 bye
1: No, that's Susie Quattro and she was doing my star signs, which is bloody unbelievable. And I'm not a big fan of star signs, I have to say, but I thought she was quite a- accurate. When she started talking about um the fact that I like balance and I don't like an argument, but when I do an argument, I, I'm i not nice because I hate arguing so much. I was like, that's pretty accurate. Maybe, I don't know. I actually felt a little bit insecure when she started saying stuff like that. I was going to hang on a minute. So wow, that was pretty amazing. Um, her album is "The Devil in Me" and it's uh, out now. It's on CD, vinyl, and online. Yeah, thank you, Susie Quattro, for talking to me. Thank you. All right, that's it for now. Tata. Bye bye. And don't forget that DICTV Radio is the sketch show that's on. On Spotify and anywhere that you listen to podcasts It's also on Chicago Comedy Radio If you get that app, it's on there every Thursday Alright mate And uh, it's sponsored by the Galway Bay Bar in Chicago The Galway Bay Bar, if you're in Chicago, absolutely brilliant Drop in, drop in I know you can probably only go in for two hours at a time now But um, it's an absolutely brilliant bar And I'm not just saying that because it's sponsoring the comedy show It is a brilliant bar. All right. See ya.
0: Listen, if you're always running to the bathroom and sometimes just can't make it, we need to talk. You're not alone. I was just like you until I spoke to an expert physician about Axonics therapy. It changed everything. It didn't just give me bladder control. It gave me my life back. Axonics therapy is not another drug. It's just a tiny device you barely have to think about. And it can give you real, lasting relief. You can even try it out first to make sure it works for you. Just take the first step. Get started at findrealrelief.com. That's findrealrelief.com.